So we're looking at Matthew 24 today. You know, I you notice they didn't make a big thing about the Ohio State-Michigan game. Uh, you know, I've matured over the years. I just want you to know that. But we're looking at Matthew, what was it, 30 to 27? Matthew 30 to 27? No, Matthew 24, 36. If you'll look there. Matthew 26, or 30. <laughs> Did you see that game yesterday? <laughs> Matthew 24, 36 through 44. So historically speaking, the way the church gets ready to celebrate the first advent of Christ at Christmas is to get ready for his second advent when he returns. It's perhaps the great leaders of the church realized how dangerous it is to celebrate Christ's birth in isolation from the rest of his life, from his death and resurrection and his mission. And see, when people do that, it's only a matter of time before Christmas becomes isolated from Christ. And it morphs into a secular feast of consumption rather than a spiritual feast of faith. So, in other words, until it becomes what it has become in America today. On Christmas morning, which is going to be on a Sunday this year, millions of people who would normally get up and go to church to exalt Christ will stay home to celebrate Christmas. Christmas isolated from Christ. It's ironic, isn't it? But we want to prepare ourselves to celebrate God's gift to the world, his gift to us in Christ. To do that, I'm going to be telling the story, the long story of Christmas for the next three weeks. Then we're going to see its roots and its results. We're going to relive its glory and its terror, its joy and its grief. But we want to get started on our Advent preparations the way the church has always gotten started on their Advent preparations, by being reminded that the Christ who came as this helpless baby is coming again as a conquering king. We're also ending the series that we've been in called It's About Time. We've been learning how to recognize those times when God breaks into our story, those favorable times, those moments of opportunity. Our text is about a time when God is going to break into everyone's story and the world will change forever. It's Matthew 20, 24, verses 36 through 44. I'm going to read them. You can follow along. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen when the flood came and took them all away. Literally, that is, until it lifted them up. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must 
also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So let me give you a little background. Here's what you need to know to understand what Jesus is talking about. The Jewish concept of time differed from the prevailing concept of time and the Greek culture that surrounded them, just as the Christian concept of time differs from the concept of time in other religions. In Judaism and Christianity, time matters. It matters in a way that it doesn't matter in Hinduism and Buddhism, for example, or for that matter, in atheism. In Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the so-called Abrahamic religions, time is moving to a point, to the point of it all. Time is headed somewhere. Christians believe it's headed to the point at which everything will be brought together seamlessly under the rule of one head, that is Jesus. That's Ephesians 1, verse 10. All creation, not just on earth, but throughout the entire universe, is converging on this point. It's the center around which the universe turns, and the center holds. And everything in spite of what you've seen on the news or followed on Facebook, in spite of the election in the U.S. and disease in the West and war in Yemen, despite the nuclear threat in North Korea and the Taliban in Afghanistan, even in spite of your own health issues and the fact you've lost your job, everything is on schedule. The Jewish view has always been that history is moving towards its fulfillment. Now, when Jesus was on earth, that was clearly the minority view. The Greeks believed that history cycles, but it never goes anywhere. When they heard the Jews speak of an end, of a day of reckoning, of the day of the Lord, it didn't make sense to them. They scoffed at it. In our day, Buddhists and Hindus and many New Age religionists come much closer to the Greek view than to the Judeo-Christian one. And most, most atheists, and I say most intentionally, do not see history progressing toward a predestined fulfillment. Albert Camus is a good example. In his novel, The Fall, he wrote, don't wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. I'm not sure what he had in mind when he wrote that. But Camus didn't believe that time is moving towards its fulfillment. For him, the last judgment was a metaphor. But for Christians and Jews, it's a real event. And we're moving towards it. Everything is moving towards it. Time is like a stream flowing to a goal. Or it's like a thousand streams coming together at a particular point. The subjection of everything in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. If you're not trying to get to that point... If you're trying to get to a different point, the unceasing current of time will eventually wear you out. Nothing will ever be easy. And you'll not end up where you want to go because that's where time is headed. The scriptures refer to the goal of history in various ways. It's the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of judgment. It's the restoration it's the renewal of all things. It's the consummation. In our passage, it's referred to as the coming of the Son of Man. In popular culture, people speak of this day as the end of the world. 
So you've seen the comic strips with the crank who's wearing a white robe, has a long white beard, and he's carrying a sign that says, the end is near. But the Bible is way more nuanced than that. The Bible presents that day not so much as the end, but as the correction, as a fresh beginning. True, it will be the end of one reality, of injustice, hatred, corruption, illness, decay, death, but it will be the beginning of another reality of justice, of love, of health, of life, of peace. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, like many of us, were really curious about when that day would come. This section in Matthew, in which our text is located, starts at the beginning of chapter 24, and it follows on the disciples' question, when will the destruction of Jerusalem, the things Jesus has just described in the first two verses, when will the destruction of Jerusalem happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now notice how the disciples identified the destruction of Jerusalem, about which Jesus had just been speaking, with the end of the age. See, it never occurred to them that the world might go on after Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. They couldn't imagine that possibility. So what we have in chapter 24 is the answer to two separate questions which the disciples thought of as one. They didn't see two questions. They only thought it was one question. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? But that actually happened in AD 70. And when will Christ return and end the age? Now, this is a difficult passage. There's no question about it. We're going to go into this in more detail later on on Wednesday evening and go deep if you'd like to be a part of that. When we get to verse 36 in this passage, Jesus is done with the destruction of Jerusalem, that first question, and has turned to the disciples' second question, the one about the coming of the Son of Man. The disciples had asked for a sign and it seems like everyone in their day was looking for a sign. It was kind of a national pastime as they looked for signs. But that's not what Jesus wants to impress on them. In fact, he warns his followers of the folly of trying to predict the date of his coming. He tells them repeatedly that they will not know when he comes, when he'll come. In verse 36, he says that he doesn't even know. And we're going to go deeper into that verse at Go Deep on Wednesday night's Big B Coffee 645. If you want to come, I invite you to come. Because it has important theological implications that we're not going to talk about this morning. But the point, Jesus says in essence, is not to know the day, but to be ready for it when it comes. You're not going to figure it out, he says. But you need to be ready. Now, we spent the last couple months talking about recognizing those moments, the Greek word is kairos, when God is active, those times, favorable times when God is active in our lives. Sometimes we have trouble recognizing those moments, but we'll have no trouble recognizing God's activity when the Son of Man comes. The question is how can we be ready for his coming, this kairos of all kairos moments? One thing is for certain, trying to predict dates will not make a person ready. It will never make a person ready. 
and yet would-be prophets never stop setting dates, and we keep making the mistake of listening to them. But Jesus said it can't be done. The day of his coming can't be predicted. He says in verse 22, you don't know on what day your Lord will come. And just to be clear, he adds, the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not expect him. That's verse 44. Some people who love to do that date-setting stuff try to justify it by saying, well, yeah, Jesus said you can't know the hour or the day, but you can know the general time, maybe the week or the month, just not the hour or the day. But that is to miss Jesus' point altogether. He's telling us that the way to be ready is not to prognosticate a date, but, verse 47, to watch, to, to be alert and on call. That's the emphasis of the entire New Testament on the topic of our responsibility regarding the return of Christ. Again and again in the teaching of Jesus and of the apostles, the application for believers is this. Be ready. Stay alert. Watch. But watch for what? We might think that we are to watch for signs, but that is not the point. When Jesus turned from the question of the destruction of Jerusalem to the coming of the Son of Man, he left talk of signs behind. When the Son of Man comes, you won't need to look for signs. His coming will be visible to everyone, like lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west. That's verse 27. It was not searching for signs that Jesus had in mind when he said watch. In fact, that's almost the opposite of what he had in mind. When I first came across this passage, years ago when I first became a Christian, I thought Jesus was saying that the world was going to deteriorate to a point that it was thoroughly hedonistic and evil. I probably heard that from some preacher. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is verse 37, that like the flood in the time of Noah, the coming of the Son of Man will catch people off guard. They'll be all wrapped up, not in hedonism, but in their ordinary affairs, just like people were in Noah's day when the flood came. The story about the two men in the field and the two women grinding grain makes the same point. People have to live. They have lives to lead. They have to eat and drink, and they're going to get married, and they're going to go to work. They can't stop doing those things, eating and drinking and going to work while they wait for the Son of Man to come. You know, some Christians tried that. They tried it in St. Paul's time, and he rebuked them for it. That's not the way to watch. Well, then, what does Jesus want us to watch for? For those Kairos moments we've been talking about for the last few months. We're to be watching for the opportunities God gives us to serve him and do our duty. We're in a similar situation to the, the U.S. employees of the 19th century American newspaper publisher, James Gordon Bennett. Bennett was a a baron of the newspaper industry, filthy rich. He had two lavish apartments in Paris, plus a French country estate, plus a yacht harbored in the Mediterranean. He also had three homes in the US and he hadn't lived here for 10 years. But Bennett insisted that his employees in each of his homes always be prepared for his arrival at any moment. He wanted each house fully staffed, the wine cellars stocked, the fire roaring in the grate, and the sheets turned down nightly in anticipation of his return. We need to be like those folks. How are we going to be ready? We're going to be ready by doing our duty. 
by looking for and seizing opportunities to serve God in his kingdom. We want to be found doing, this is verse 46, what we've been given to do when our master comes. We don't want to be found scouring the scriptures and the evening news for signs while we're neglecting our duty. If you want a sign, it's right in front of you. Pick up your Bible. Love your wife. Honor your parents. Nurture your children. Do good to those who hate you. Love one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope you have within you. If you're looking for a sign, but not doing those things, you won't be ready. Shuris Manaharan tells a story about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. I like this story. They go camping together. So after a meal around the campfire and a, a pipe, they retire in their tent for the night. At about three o'clock in the morning, Holmes wakes Watson and he asks him, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. Watson says, I see millions of stars. Holmes asks, and what does that tell you? So Watson is always eager to impress Holmes. So he says, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me it's about 3 a.m. Meteorologically, it tells me that we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes says, it tells me, my dear Watson, that someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> when we're looking for signs and not seeing the things God has placed before us to do, the opportunities to serve him, the Kairos moments, we're just like Dr. Watson. Doesn't matter how smart we sound, we're making fools of ourselves. Jesus made it clear when he comes back, the question will not be, did we read the signs correctly? But did we do what he gave us to do? The delightful St. Teresa of Avila said, many people neglect the task that lies at hand and are content with having wished to do the impossible. May we not be among them. The last couple of months, we've been thinking about how to recognize and take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to serve him, those Kairos moments. But those opportunities will dry up if we neglect what God has already given us to do. So what's God given you to do? What's he placed at your doorstep? Is there something you know you should do that you've been neglecting. You've been walking around it. It may be some volunteer opportunity, maybe some ministry, maybe some gift that God's told you to give or some relationship that needs work. Maybe you've told yourself or at least felt like you'll get around to it when you get the time, but you keep procrastinating. It's all too easy to say or feel, which is more like it. It's all too easy to feel tomorrow. But until we do that thing, our opportunities will dry up and we will not be ready for Christ to come. 
There's an old story about three demons who are strategizing how best to overthrow souls. The first demon suggested, well, tell them there's no God. The other said, that won't work. There's just too much evidence. And besides that, God's left witness in their hearts. So the second one said, well, if we can't tell them there's no God, maybe we should tell them that there's no hell. But one of the other ones said, I've tried that. It doesn't work. They want to believe that, but they can't. So what are we going to do? If we can't tell them there's no God and there's no hell, what are we going to tell them? And the third said, I've got it. Tell them there's no hurry. If you really could figure out the exact time of Christ's return, in spite of the fact that he's told you you can't, but if you could, if you learned that it would be in 13 years, 18 days, and 35 minutes, would that really help you be ready for him to return, or would it actually hinder you? I think it would hinder most of us. We would say, I have 13 years, 18 days, 35 minutes. What will help us be ready? And more than that, what will help us love his appearing, as St. Paul puts it, is to do the thing he's given us to do today. Now look, that may not be a big thing. It probably isn't. But it's the right thing. If you don't know what it is, you really have no idea. And I found over the years that many people have an idea if you give them time. They know what God's put at their doorstep, that they've been walking around maybe for years. If you really don't know what it is, ask God what it is. And if you're willing to do what he tells you, he'll, he'll tell you. But if you're not willing, there's no real sense in asking. If you are, then get ready for opportunities to come. For some of us, the thing he's given us to do, the thing that we've been putting off, is to believe God, confess Christ as Lord, and come over to God's side. If you're one of those folks, I encourage you not to put it off any longer, because now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. God, I pray you'll tune our hearts to sing your praise. I ask you to prepare us for this Christmas like we haven't been prepared in a long time. To celebrate what you've done with wonder and joy and gratitude. Ready our hearts to celebrate Christmas by readying us to celebrate our King. I ask you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.